Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. I'm still in my house, and we're still doing this thing called Ask Katie Anything. And I pulled your questions. If any of you are wondering um, where I pull the questions from, I pull them from my uh, YouTube community tab. And uh, yeah. So there were lots of them and I tried to pick the ones that had the most thumbs ups and I will ask you again, probably next week for a new round of questions. So if your question didn't get answered, it doesn't mean it's not important. It just means I didn't get to it. So you can ask it again. Okay. Um, and I kind of wanted to start today's podcast off. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out where I want my microphone, microphone. Um, <clears throat> I think I'll scoot over this way a little bit. It makes me feel better. Um, I kind of just wanted to talk. I've been debating whether I just do like a rant video on my uh, Katie Morton channel about this because it's been a it's been a shitty few weeks here. And I know a lot of you are feeling that. And I really just want to like reach out and be like, hey, I feel bad, too. Um, It's been hard. And only it was only last night. So, you guys, I haven't left my house since the 16th of March. And so that makes it what day is today? Today is the 9th of April. Um. So it's like we're coming up on at least, isn't that three weeks and four days or something like that? Um, Sorry, it's going to bother me. So I'm going to have to trick. So it's one, two, three weeks and two days or three days. Um, And it was only last night that I really finally started to calm down. I still had anxious dreams. Don't think this is perfect. But I, I finally felt and this sounds strange, but I felt tired and like relaxed at night, which hasn't happened in three weeks and three days or whatever we decided that was. Um, so I want you to know that you're not alone and that like how you're feeling isn't weird. There's nothing wrong with you. And if you already had a mental illness, it makes this even worse because you, it's like you normally were dealing with, you know, this amount of shit. And then we pile on another layer called, you know, COVID-19 and just makes things that much more difficult. And so, I really just wanted to tell you how I'm doing so that you know that if you're not doing well either, it's okay. We'll get through this. And I think for me, a lot of it has been um, thought-stopping techniques, distraction. Um, Also, like I like to do, like take action where I can. And a lot of that is like helping you. And so to that end, I'm working on videos that I hope will be helpful, like dealing with isolation, uh, beginner's guide to meditation, um, the Michael Scott psychoanalysis. Da-da-da-da. And then um and then maybe just a video about me talking about where I'm at and stuff like that. But yeah. And also before I get into your questions, um I also wanted to address I, I've been getting a ton of messages about uh, two things. Number one, about uh Trisha Paytas's DID video, and the other about Eugenia Cooney and people worrying that she's like relapsing. And <clears throat> people are like, You need to do a video about this. Wrong. Um, if you consider my videos, if you've gone back and any collaborations I've done, I collaborate with people and give them an opportunity to share their story from their perspective, because it's theirs, not mine to share. And therefore, I don't weigh in on people's mental health issues or mental illnesses or whatever we think is going on. That's theirs. That's not mine. As a therapist, I actually think it's really ethically questionable. I've seen a lot of people doing it where they as clinicians, uh, you know, weigh in on situations uh, that they're not involved in, those aren't their patients, they don't know anything about them. And I really have a, a huge ethical dilemma with that, because I feel like you're judging someone based on a video they've created or uh, photos you've seen, they're not your patient. And you're putting your thoughts out into the world about it. And I think that's a really 
icky, hurtful place to be in. Like, I don't want to comment on anyone else's situation because they're not, it's only their story to tell. That's really it, period. That's all I have to say. But I know a lot of you are upset, especially about the Trish Paytas thing, because you're like, hey, she's uh, putting out misinformation and stuff like that. We can each just stay in our lane. We don't need to bully one another. We don't need to be mad or shout. We can educate. What is dissociative identity disorder? I have a whole video about it. I have videos about dissociation, maladaptive daydreaming. I believe that dissociation kind of lives on a spectrum. Um, yeah, so we all we can do is just do our part to educate. And yeah, there's always going to be people out there in the world who want to talk about something in an incorrect manner, or they want to share their story, and they haven't been diagnosed by a professional. And that's theirs to do. That doesn't mean that we have to be... Um, like angry with them or uh, want to, you know, bully them online. Um, we can just do our part to put positive, helpful, correct information out there. And I don't believe as a clinician, it's my responsibility. I mean, I know it's not my responsibility, but I also don't want to comment on someone else's stuff. That's their stuff. And if they want to share a story, that's cool. Um, does it mean they're correct and hundred percent accurate and doing the best they can? We don't know. No, I don't know. Okay, so I just want to talk about that because I've been, I see messages and I'm like, I don't want to have to keep telling people like, hey, I don't comment on other people's mental illnesses. So if you see a comment out there, do me a favor and just say, hey, Katie talked about this on her podcast and she's, she just said that she doesn't comment on people's mental health issues. I, I teach about mental health, mental illnesses, how they're treated, how they can feel. And so maybe just share my DID video if you feel that it's correct and sufficient share it. And I'm happy to do another one if you want. That That's what I can do. That's my contribution to this crazy online world. Um, okay, so enough about that. Enough about me. Enough about any of this bullshit that's happening online. Because frankly, there's two other bigger things that are happening. Um, yeah, but let's get into your questions because you've been patiently waiting. Now I have, we'll see how many we get through. I pulled 11 questions. There's more if I need you. If we run, if I get through these and we're like, Phew, then, you know, I'll keep going. Um, but anyways, I hope you all are staying home and staying safe. Don't go out if you don't have to. A lot of people have to go out like all of our first responders, our healthcare workers, our grocery store, uh, from the supply chain of people bringing the food to the people in the stores. Um, they don't have the opportunity. Uh, who else would be out there? Pharmacists, um, delivery people, all of that. They can't stay home. So we have to stay home for them so that they don't get sick. And we don't keep spreading this. I know it's hard. I know a lot of people are like, but I'm just going over to my one friend's house. And we're just gonna no. even the fact that you're getting in a car. And you're driving means that you could potentially I know this sounds terrible, you could get into a car accident. And then we are requiring emergency services to save our ass for trying to go to our friend's house when they really should be saving other people who are maybe struggling to breathe with coronavirus in their home and they need to be taken to the hospital. I don't know. Stay home, stay safe. It's the best way we can look out for each other. So I hope you're doing that because I haven't left my house in a really long time and I don't like it either. Um, and it's okay to like sit in front of a window, get some sun on your face because we all need that vitamin D. It's really important that we get that. Um, or if you need to sit in your car with the, you know, the windows up, but all like if you have a sunroof, you open that blind on it and just let it feel it. That's okay, too. And if you're fortunate enough to have like a big backyard or something like sit out there, I'm so jealous. Send me photos. So jealous. Okay. That's enough. Question number one. Is it common to go backwards at the beginning of therapy? I found that when I first begin therapy after being away for a while, I always feel worse for a few weeks before getting better. Yes, it's very common. I wouldn't call it going backwards. I kind of liked how they said I feel worse. And not, not that I like that. That's not a good thing. I get that. However, I do want you to know that when we get back into therapy, it's like, do you know when, uh, I've talked about this before when it comes to eating disorders, like it gets worse before it gets better because we've been like stuffing something down for so long. For instance, I'll, I'll share my own personal examples. Like I know if I'm really tearful in regular life and I, um, I don't know, let's say I get like angry, I'm more irritable than normal. In my head, I'm like, mm, you should probably go back into therapy. You should probably talk to someone. Let's do that. Let's make that happen. And then when I go into therapy, what happens? I cry a lot. I feel bad a lot. I like have to talk through all the stuff I'd been stuffing down to cause that therapy need. 
Does that make sense? I hope so. So when we get into therapy, it can be like that dam that we built up is broken. And for a while, it's just like a flood of emotions, a flood of all the good, bad, ugly, whatever. And so, yes, it's very normal for the first few weeks for you to feel a little bit worse, almost like we're like uh, trying to to break even. We're trying to move through that stockpile that we have of, of emotions and overwhelm. We're trying to dig through it, sort it, and then we'll be like, okay, now we're back to baseline. So it's very normal to feel overwhelmed at the beginning. And in general, when it comes to eating disorders, self-injury, uh, addiction, when we first try to stop, it's going to feel terrible because we've been using that coping skill forever, right? We've used it and it, oh, it makes us feel so much better. And, and it, it helps us like numb out or not have to think about that or feel that or et cetera, et cetera. And so when we <clears throat> stop using it, all the reasons that we were using it, like maybe uh, past trauma or abuse, uh, a relationship upset, uh, overwhelming anger, uh, anything, all those things come flooding back because we're not using that unhealthy coping skill to cope. And I know, I know it sucks. I know it feels terrible, but it does get better. So if we just stick with it, it will go away. Like this person said, I feel worse for the first few weeks. And I do too. It's like, I have so much to talk about for like three or four sessions where I'm just like, oh my God. And I leave feeling exhausted and I've cried the whole session. That's how I am. I cried in my car on the way home. And then hmm, it's not so bad anymore. It's more helpful. I need more homework. I need more tangible tools because I've kind of come over that hump. And now I'm like, oh, okay, I can, I can sustain this. I can do this. Um, so yeah, very common stick with it. It's always hard at the beginning, but once we've kind of dug through our stockpile, we'll feel a little bit better. And it'll start to get better and better and better. Okay. Question number two. Hey, Katie, I recently realized that I was parentified when I was a child. And I'll, don't worry, I'll tell you what that means. Um, and may have also been emotionally abused. My therapist suggests that I try to forgive my parents to ease some of the resentment I hold, but I don't know if I'm ready to do that or will ever be ready. Do you have any suggestions on how to handle this? Very good question. And I think a lot of us were parentified children, especially if you're the oldest child or like the most responsible child. In a lot of ways, we could have cared for our other siblings and acted as the parent or if our parent. Um, okay, so let's get into sorry, <clears throat> what it means to be a parentified child means that when you were a child, you weren't able to act in childlike ways. Instead, you were forced to act like an adult to do things a parent should be doing. That could be taking care of your siblings. That could be um, having your parent talk to you like you're their friend, not their child. Like your mother or father should never talk to you about their sex life and how their relationship with whoever they're dating is going or how they cheat on them. That's something that they talk to their friends about. You know what they talk to you about? Did you do your homework? How did that class go? Um, what's, how's your friend that you know ha broke her leg last month? I don't know. They ask you about things that are regular child-parent conversations. We are not our parents' friend. That's a weird thing that can mess us up so that we never got to be a child. And I've seen a lot of people tell me how because they were parentified, when they get older, they find themselves like either overly responsible, meaning super like have, have a lot of control issues, inability to let other people do things for them. They might have trust issues, like you can't trust anybody else to be there for you. You're the only one that can do it. And we can even uh, kind of revert back and go into like a second chance for childhood where we act out in childish ways because we never had that opportunity. So <clears throat> that's what it means to be a parentified child. I have a whole video about it. If you want to just get on YouTube, you can search Katie Morton parentified child <clears throat> and you'll find it. Okay. So that's what we're dealing with. And it takes us some time to realize that we've been through it. I, I know that it's very normal to be like, Oh, I recently realized and I'm like 36 or something. That's, that's totally, totally normal. Okay. Now, the question is about forgiving your parents. So we know they were a parentified child, and they may have also been emotionally abused. Um, it's interesting that your therapist suggested you try to forgive. And I get it. Um, forgiveness, that's the interesting thing about forgiveness. And I, I struggle with it personally. So don't think that I'm like, oh, this is so easy. Just do it. Just forgive. Just say, you know, all is forgiven. Move on. But... There is a huge difference, and I want you to 
really feel this. I talked about this in a recent video about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I think those are huge. There's a huge gap in between there. There's world, they're worlds apart, but we often think they're the same. Forgiveness does not have to mean let's continue this relationship or it's okay. I don't mind that you treated me that way. That's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means I am not going to hold on to the shame, the anger, the resentment, the frustration or guilt that I feel anymore about this situation. I'm going to forgive and let it go. That's all forgiveness really means, you guys. And I know that it's hard because I even personally think that forgiveness is like, oh, letting them off the hook, letting them get away with that. I should hold it over their head for the rest of their life. They're such a garbage human. But you can already tell that's me holding on to my anger, right? I even could feel, even as I said those words, I could feel myself getting amped up and like, ooh, ooh, angry, right? I mean, especially if someone hurts somebody I love, ooh, mm so angry. But that doesn't mean reconciliation. I'm not actually letting them off the hook. I'm letting myself off the hook. Who likes to feel resentment all the time or angry all the time? It's exhausting. And not to mention, I don't like having my brain filled with negativity. If I'm doing all this work on myself, trying to talk more positively, think more positive thoughts, I don't want to have it filled with all this negativity about someone else. Yeah, it's not about me, but it's still negative and it still pulls me down. And so I think that it is something that we should all consider doing is to forgive. But I would encourage you to watch my video about forgiveness versus reconciliation and knowing that just because we forgive our parents, even if they did some really fucked up shit and really ruined our childhood or our life. And oftentimes we're thinking like, I'm spending thousands of dollars in therapy just to deal with what they did. Like, how dare you? But by forgiving them, it doesn't mean that we're going to continue the relationship. It doesn't mean we, we even have to give them access to us. It doesn't mean what they did is okay. It just means that we're not going to hold on to all those nasty feelings anymore. We're going to forgive. We're going to let it go. And I promise you, you'll feel so much better. Otherwise, holding on to resentment and anger just kind of festers inside of us until we explode. Um, <clears throat> and that's when we can get like rage filled randomly on the street where somebody cuts us off. And we're like, are you kidding me? We go from like zero to 100 because we're already just filled with so much of that anger and resentment. So it's okay to let it go. It's okay to forgive. And I know that that's hard, but I like to think of it just keep reframing it in your head. Be like, it doesn't mean acceptance. It doesn't mean reconciliation. It means I don't want to feel like shit anymore. And that's an easier thing to come around to, you know? I always find I'm, I like, I like breathe heavily into the mic and I'm sorry. I don't know how to not. And it's like, it's far enough away from my mouth, my face, but I, you know, got to breathe. Okay. Ooh, itchy nose. Okay. So I think <clears throat> to answer the end, the last part of their question, do you have any suggestions on how to handle this? I think, I mean, my main suggestion would be to do the work on the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation and, you know, how forgiveness is not acceptance and consider what forgiveness could mean for you and how you would go about forgiving them. Because the thing about forgiveness is we don't actually have to say anything to them at all. We don't have to interact with them at all. All we have to do is let ourselves off the hook for all the anger and resentment we may feel. And so I would just encourage you to start journaling about it, thinking about it, talking about it in therapy. And when you're ready, you'll, you'll do it. But I can tell you from personal experience, letting go of that is so freeing. It makes you feel so much better. And no, it doesn't make it perfect. And also, no, it doesn't mean you have to be in a relationship with that person, which I have to be honest, just that thought of, it was a big change in my life when I thought about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation and the fact that forgiveness doesn't mean I want to see you again. Forgiveness just means I don't want to think about you again. That's better. So yeah, take your time. I think it is, I agree with your therapist, it is something you should consider. Um, But framing it that way hopefully gives you like, oh, hopefully give you a little aha potential moment where you're like, I could maybe do that. 
I could think about that. Um, but give yourself time. Okay, question number three. And this is a question I've received a lot since uh, since the coronavirus <clears throat> shenanigans because we're all stuck in our houses. And uh, Sean's creeping by here at the side. I don't know if you can see him, but <laughs> he was trying to sneak by because he's checking. He's making soup. And so he was checking on it. And it was kind of funny to see him like creeping. I don't know if you, maybe you caught him on the edge of the frame. I don't know. Um, but that's what that was. So anyways, this question so common right now because we're all in our houses. Therapy isn't working in the way it used to be. We don't get to go into the offices like we used to, and it it sucks, and I get it. So the question is, how can I prepare for online therapy sessions via Skype? I feel very nervous about it. And a lot of you are telling me that, that you feel super nervous, and you're not sure how to prepare, and you don't really know what to expect, and it's just awkward, and how do I find space in my home, and there's all sorts of things about this. So, okay. My first uh, thought on this is we all have certain rituals we do around therapy. Many of you have told me that you like go get a coffee or a tea or you fill up your water bottle and you grab your journal, you get in your car, you go to therapy and some of you put on like cozy pants, things like that. And then we go and we wait and it starts and we sit on the couch and we hold a pillow to our chest or we put a blanket over ourselves or whatever we do. We do that almost every week. Maybe your therapist has like a fidget toy or um, some like silly putty or something that lets you use uh, and you use that while you talk. We can still do all of those things except go to the, the actual office and I would encourage you to continue those rituals. So for me, I used to always go get a coffee at this one place and I can't get that coffee now because it's not open because it's not essential business, which is crazy because coffee is essential. I'm just kidding. Um, but I can make a coffee in my, in my kitchen. I'm pointing over there because my kitchen is over there, but I can make a coffee in there. I can make it just the way I like. I can pick it up. I can take it into my, maybe let's say the office is the quietest place or the bedroom. I can go into that space. I can grab that pillow off the couch and I can hug it to my chest. I can sit in a comfortable spot and I can start my session. And so as much as you can, try to do that ritual. Try to continue. I could bring out my silly putty. I could order some on Amazon or something, pick it up at Target, whatever, so that I have something to keep my hands busy. Just do that same ritual, get yourself in that rhythm. I know it's not quite the same. If you have to get in your car and drive around the block park and get back out and come back into your house, and that makes you feel a little better. I'm fine with that too. do whatever you have to do to try to stay in that routine so that your body and brain are amped up and ready for therapy. And creating a private space is very important too. I know this sucks for a lot of you who are like, uh, my parents don't know I'm in therapy, you do it in your car. Or you do it, you uh, tell them you're going to call a friend and you sit in your closet and you turn on music in the other room so they can't hear you. You do whatever you can um, and you connect that way. But we have to make it work for us and we have to figure out what the ritual and routine is for us. Um, I know it's tricky. Also, the great thing when this person says, but I feel nervous about it. The great thing is we can have notes in front of us, right? If I'm on Skype, I can have another window open or a tab like off to the side so that the Skype is on one side and this is on the other. And it can have all my notes like, hey, this week I've been having anxious. This is what I would tell my therapist. I've been anxiety dreams. I've been a little bit more irritable <clears throat> because I'm not sleeping as well. Um, I uh, have ruminating thoughts about disaster and, you know, all these things. So I could write those things down and then I could talk directly to my therapist while I'm on Skype. I could be like, hey, you know, these are the things I'm experiencing. So my anxiety is a little bit higher. I've been having like kind of down depressive thoughts. I'm using my thought stopping techniques, but it's not getting better. You know, I can make sure I don't forget anything. So take advantage of that. And also talk about how awkward this is and how anxious you are. It's okay. That's what therapy is there for. You can be like, hey, I'm, I'm glad you're doing Skype sessions. I don't want you to think that I don't, you know, but this is really uncomfortable and I'm kind of anxious. That's okay. You can bring that up. We can process that. We can come up with tools and tips and things to do to help alleviate that. Because trust me, we're all feeling very nervous and anxious right now. And I'm sure that this is just adding to it. Um, but those are just some tips and tricks on how to prepare for online therapy. I know it's just not the same. 
And I prefer to see my patients in person, but that's just not something we can do right now. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we won't be able to get back to it. This isn't forever. We will get through this. So let's not catastrophize. And let's just set up a new ritual or routine that we do before and make sure we keep doing it. And then ask for homework. Make sure you've got homework that you can do because that kind of keeps us going in between sessions when we may feel like we have all this time on our hands to think negative thoughts or do negative things. Am I right? It helps to have a little bit of homework. Okay. And know that it's weird for the therapist too. I don't enjoy Skype sessions as much as in person. Sure, they're helpful and it's a great way to connect and I appreciate technology and I know that it's necessary, but there's just some things that we miss too. First of all, it's weird for you to only see me from here up and for me to not be in my office. And uh, I might be missing the fact that your foot is shaking around and fidgeting because you're anxious or nervous. I won't see that because you can keep this part of you still. Um, maybe you haven't showered, but you you know, made it look like you did. I don't know. There's a lot of things that are missing um, when we're not in session together. And also just that holding environment. I've heard from a lot of you, even my patients, that they like miss that the uh, space and the security and safety that comes with coming to the office. And that's why we kind of have to create it at home. I know it's not as good. It's not the same, but we can make it, you know, be just enough for now to hold us until we can go back, which hopefully is in a couple of months. We'll see. I know in LA um, and in Santa Monica, they've, they've like extended the closing of non-essential businesses until April 30th, I believe. So we'll be here for a while, folks. Okay. Another drink of water. Okay. It's because when I talk a lot, my throat starts to hurt if I don't do that. So something I've learned over my years of live streaming. Okay. Question number four. How can we know if we had depression in the past? I know I'm not supposed to self-diagnose, but I'm fairly sure about it. The truth about depression is... Um, <clears throat> most of us, I would assume, has gone through what I would call a depressive episode. Does that mean we have major depressive disorder and it's gone on forever? No. Does that mean that we, you know, definitely would have been diagnosed with it? No. But I think almost everyone has had a depressive episode. And I'm not, I'm not saying everybody has, but I would guess that most of us, the majority of people have. And what a depressive episode looks like is we have changes in our sleep or appetite. We don't enjoy things that um, we call it I almost said akathisia, you guys, and that is not the word. Anhedonia. I don't know why. Um, but we just don't find enjoyment in the things that we used to. And that could be like, oh, I used to love to uh, find new music and listen to it. I used to love to doodle. used to love to uh, play my guitar, uh, go shopping, uh, eat adventurous food. I don't know. I used to like to dance. I used to like do all, and I don't like any of it anymore. None of it brings me joy. It's such a task. It's like, oh, this thing I have to do. And so we'll feel that way. And we'll also um, just feel shitty about things. And I say that as like a blanket statement because a lot of the symptoms of depression are things like, um, like I said, like lack of enjoyment. It could be uh, suicidal thoughts. It could be uh, negative thoughts about ourselves and our situation, feeling kind of hopeless, helpless, things like that. And then back to like the sleep uh, changes, appetite changes, um, just feeling very down about our situation. And I think a lot of us have fallen into that. And this has to be happening. And I, I could be wrong. You guys can correct me in those comments down below if I'm like forgetting something, but it's just off the top of my head. I haven't grabbed my DSM. I could. I don't think it's necessary. You guys get the gist. But this has to happen for most of a day for two weeks. So for 14 days. So most of the days we feel this way and it happens for at least two weeks. That's not that long. I know it feels like a really long time. Trust me. I've been there. I've had shitty things happen in my life too. I've been down and out too. Two weeks goes by pretty quick, even though when you're in it, it feels like in a lifetime. So that's how we would know. However, I do agree with what they're saying. Not supposed to self-diagnose. Self-diagnosis gives us I've talked about this in videos in the past, but it gives us like a place to start. It gives us an idea of what we would need to see someone about. I think that it helps to kind of know our symptoms, know what we're struggling with, know what we want to work on. Um, but other than that, I don't really think it has a place because after that, we can't, uh, you know, we don't know if that's actually what our diagnosis is. What is, what if we have depression, but we actually have bipolar disorder and this depression is just 
a part of it. And we don't recognize more in hypomania because we're like, oh, I came out of my depression. I was so efficient. I got so much done. I had so much energy. We can feel great. People around us are like, something's going on with Katie. She is way too energized. I'm not really sure. But we aren't able to see it. And that's why it's really, really, really important that we see a therapist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, any mental health professional. We see them to get properly diagnosed. Because even if we think we have depression, we might be wrong. And so I don't believe that it behooves us to then try to like treat ourselves and and get these books that are self-help. Because then we're just relying on that one person's thing uh, to assist us in this thing that we don't even know if we really have. But it does give us a place to start. I think it is helpful. It can be really um, great to, to be able to look into certain specialists to help us with whatever you know it is we're struggling with. Um, yeah. So I hope that that helps. I know it's like, I know we all want to self-diagnose, but it, it's just a slippery slope. And I want to make sure we all get treated for exactly what's going on. And it's also important that we see therapists for a while before they diagnose us. There's no like quick way to know, oh, they struggle with this and that's exactly what it is. We have to track your symptoms. We have to ask questions. We have to get to know you. You have to be honest with us. All of those components are really important and key when it comes to diagnosing um, and then treating. Okay. And if you want more information on depression, like I have a videos on high functioning depression, I have a video on major depressive disorder talking about all the diagnostic criteria one at a time. Um, but there are those two things that we have to have, which is like the anhedonia, like the lack of interest in things, and lack of enjoyment. And then overall, just a, a feeling of dread, hopelessness, helplessness, like, bleh. and I, I believe that's, if my memory serves me, it's just the two. Okay. Um, question number five. During this pandemic, how can we cope with having all appointments canceled? It's been really difficult to suddenly have no support while I'm struggling the most with my eating disorder and mood. And I want to talk a little bit about eating disorders. That's why I left this question. And I know it's kind of similar to like preparing for online therapy sessions and blah, blah, blah. But eating disorders are, I'm sure you all are really struggling and I'm sorry. This is a stressful time. And what does our eating disorder do for us? It's a coping skill. It helps us feel better for a short period of time before it ruins our life. But it does help us feel better a little bit. And it's our coping skill. And I get it. You're comfortable with that coping skill. And it's comfortable hanging out. And so it's probably really, really, really triggering right now. And so we got to use all our tools, you guys. We have to make sure we set up appointments. I know appointments are canceled, but I want you to ask for Zoom and Skype. I want you to do phone sessions. I want you to connect. It's so important right now that we all have the support that we need. Things are chaotic. I don't even know how to cope some days, you guys. It's We're in a pretty shitty situation. It sucks to be isolated, especially during this, because the one thing that we do need is support and connection and relationships. And it sucks that we don't, we're not getting that in the way that we used to. And so know that you still have support. We just have to adjust to do some Zoom or Skype or whatever, um, push for that. I can't imagine your therapist or dietitian or whoever your treatment team is not doing those. I, everybody I know is doing them and we're busier than ever. So set those appointments up and then also get back into your tools and tips. Uh, you can even just Google impulse log, print that out and use it. It should say something like, what's the impulse? And that'd be like, use eating disorder behavior, insert whatever that is. What's the date and time? What are the feel? What are three feelings I'm experiencing right now? Um, what do I think this behavior would accomplish? And then I always add in like, what are, what's something I can do instead? And I want you to put three things in there. Once you've done those three things, you wait 30 minutes, you can do whatever the fuck you want. But I want you to follow through. I want you to do that impulse log and that will slow down this uh, eating disorder relapse or sliding back a little bit. Um, because we have to keep track of those. We have to recognize where they're coming from. And I want you all to understand that when we are in this stress response because of like the pandemic, let's, you know, we're in fight, flight, freeze, that triggers our amygdala, which we all know, right? I've talked about that a lot. It's like this little bean, two-part bean-like thing in the middle of our brain, in our midbrain. And it sounds the alarm. And when it's triggered and the amygdala is like, hey, dudes and dudettes, we need to either fucking fight, flight or freeze and I'm taking charge. And it sounds when it 
sends that alarm, it like shuts off our prefrontal cortex. Our prefrontal cortex is like, I don't know. That seems a little impulsive. It's like, not now. We're fight, flight, freezing. You shut the fuck up. I'm taking over. So it takes over, sounds the alarm. And so because that that's our wise mind, that prefrontal cortex is our wise mind. It's the part of our head that's like, hmm. But if I say it that way, maybe they would think that and I don't really want to get into a fight. I would, it, it reasons, it takes into account different variables and what the outcomes could be. And it tries to make the, the best choice for us. It's like the adult part of our brain, the control center. But if it's offline because the amygdala is like freaking out, you know, sounding the alarm, then we're not going to be that great at making decisions. And so this is why I believe all of our urges to self-injure, to use eating disorders, to maybe, you know, feel suicidal and want to act out in some ways like that. I think all of those things are being triggered because our prefrontal cortex is offline. And so what we have to do more than anything is lean into those impulse logs and we got to find some ways to soothe our system. And to that end, I am going to do a video I'm just working on right now about like the meditation and a beginner's guide for that because I think that could really help a lot of us. But if we're in fight or flight, um, we could use the four by four breathing. We can use things to like calm. If we need to be more ignited because we're in freeze, that might mean like we need a snap a rubber band on our wrist. We need to squeeze ice. It can be some of those things to kind of get us out of that. Um, it's a lot of the grounding techniques. We can count colors in the room. We can put on some louder music. We can do my old video, um, breath of fire. I could do that where it's like, <laughs> That gives you like more energy. Um, so there are certain things that we can do because I think that that's why all this is coming, just bubbling to the top. So at the, just in summation, um, to deal with your eating disorder and your mood, set up some appointments, request, request, request some Skype or Zoom or FaceTime phone sessions, whatever, to connect with your team, dig into those impulse logs, and then check out my coping skills video, my 25 coping skills video, find some things that help kind of soothe you, calm you down. And let's do those a little bit more. Okay. I know it's hard. But again, like it won't be forever. We'll get through this. Uh, just, you know, use your tools. Okay. Okay, question number six. Hi, Katie, do you have any tips for dealing with your own failed suicide attempt? Thanks for your videos. They've really helped me and literally saved my life. Oh, of course. I'm glad that I could be there when you needed. Um, that's the cool thing about YouTube is it's accessible 24-7. And I know a lot of you have told me like the nighttime is like the hardest time. Okay, another drink of water. Um, I think when it comes to suicide attempts that we feel are failed, even if I've heard from a lot of my patients, they consider them failed, even if they didn't really follow through with them completely, because they like did some of the action. Um, a lot of it is the shame and guilt. And the only way I believe to process shame and guilt in a real way is to talk about it, show some courage and share your story be vulnerable with your therapist about why and, and what had happened and why, you know, why this became what it was. Um, and allow yourself to just like feel it and grieve it. I know that sounds weird because you're like, Katie, no, nobody, nobody died. Nothing really happened. It was failed. No, what happened was I felt hopeless and I felt helpless. And then I tried to take my own life. And always the thought then from my patients, I've heard and from my viewers, like you have heard this. And then I couldn't even do that. Ah, the like loathing. And so we have to grieve what we thought was going to happen. I know that sounds weird, but allow yourself to just feel shitty and bummed about it. It's okay. But then we're going to have to move past. So just because we allow ourselves to feel something does not mean we allow ourselves to wallow. Again, kind of like to that forgiveness versus reconciliation. Feeling feelings doesn't mean wallowing or ruminating. Feeling feelings means I, I hear them. I feel them. I let myself process what happened and why I felt that way. And then I let it go. And letting it go is just like, on to the next feeling, on to the next thought, on to the next thing. And so allow yourself that time. Allow yourself to feel sad about it, to feel embarrassed, 
to feel shame, whatever it is you need to feel. But then the thing, the only way out from that shame is to share your story, to speak your truth, to be courageous and tell your therapist or other mental health professional that 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 happened and you were in this dark place. And um, for a lot of people too, it helps for them to feel like they can help someone else. So sometimes we'll, uh, you know, share our stories online or talk at schools or do some hours at the crisis text line, become like a crisis counselor. Like there are ways we can give back to the community. If that's something that you think would really help you. I know that that helps a lot of people. Um, And then we have to go back and learn from it. And this is the part in therapy after we've kind of like processed what happened and how you're feeling and, and how we're doing is now that we're after it, I'd want to create a safety plan so that we have that in place. I have a whole video about this. Also, I'd want to know what made this attempt happen. What took place that we feel triggered this all the way up to you actually acting on it? Because as a therapist, I don't want that to happen again. I don't want you to feel that dark and hopeless ever again. And I don't, I sure as hell don't want you to try to take your own life. So I want to know what went wrong. And I want to track back to all the feelings and experiences and things that were going on and how we felt and blah, 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 blah all the way back there so that we can better manage it. And I know, I know it's, it's hard. It's difficult. A lot of times, um, many of you told me that you feel like, oh, well, it's just hopeless. I'm hopeless. It's helpless. It's never going to get better. It will get better. We just need some support. Everybody needs support sometimes. And right now we're missing connectivity. I'm very, very worried that we're going to see suicide rates go up in the States and all across the world, really. Um, because of this coronavirus, because we need connection. We need people to come over and and hug us and, you know, with consent, rub our back, tell us it's going to be okay. We really need that. That's the antidote for all this loneliness and stress we're experiencing. So that's what I would do. We have to feel it. We have to grieve it. We have to talk about in therapy, come up with a safety plan and learn from it. Because trust me, I know you don't like feeling that shitty and I don't want you to feel that shitty. So we work with your therapist to figure out what went wrong and what we could do instead. And that goes into your safety plan. That's how we put those together. It's like, okay, if this is how we're going to feel and this is what usually happens, how do we get in the middle of that and do something different? So if the thought is, this is never going to get better, I might as well just, you know, call it quits now. How do we get, do we do some thought stopping? Maybe we do. Do we do just some distract? Do, bleh, that was a mouthful. Do we do some distractions? We probably do. Um, so doing that will really, really help you kind of like get out of having that happen again. Cool. And I'm sorry you were feeling so bad. It's shitty and I know it's terrible, but we'll get through this. People count on you. I'm counting on you. You're important. I see you. You're valuable. There's a reason that you're here. Don't let those negative thoughts take that from you. They only tell you lies, okay? Trust me, I know. I've heard them. They're horrible, horrible, horrible. But they're liars. Okay. Question number seven. We're making pretty good time, you guys. Question number seven says, I think I have bipolar. I've researched a lot about it, and most of the things say in the... I think English isn't their first language, so it's a little tricky. So it says, I've researched a lot of things, and most of the things say, I think most of what it says is exactly what's happening to me. I think that's what they mean. I started thinking that I might have have one because I saw this show where the character had bipolar disorder, and I'm so confused that I experienced, the char- I experienced what the character has gone through in the show. It all started when my grandfather and auntie died a year after, oh, year after year. So the one died, then the next year the other died, I'd assume. I was so confused until now, and I told my parents about this, but they didn't believe me. They said, I'm just so lazy and don't have a dream, and that's why I'm like this. But my question is, is it possible that I'm making all this, um, I'm making this bipolar disorder up just to escape from things, or um, just be like, hmm, or just be lazy at the time now, I guess, be lazy now? Sorry, it's, um, I know your English is way better than whatever language you speak primarily, because I don't speak any very well. So I get I get the point. So the point is, I think I have bipolar disorder. I researched a lot about it, and it seems to be exactly what I'm experiencing. They watched a show where the character had bipolar disorder. Um, it, and so they're worried that maybe they're making it up or they're just being lazy. And I think that might be coming from the fact that, you know, you told your parents and they don't believe you. Um, 
I think, first of all, the only way to get properly diagnosed is to see someone. I'd like to guess about this. Like, could it have been that you researched so much and then you felt like it was enough of it was correct. And so now you think that sure. Could you not have it? Sure. The only way to get properly diagnosed is to see a mental health professional. I would go do that. If we're feeling any kind of upset, any kind of, uh, like not ourselves, like in the, in the DSM, they always talk about how if it impairs our ability to function in our everyday life, that's like always one of the criteria for everything. And if we're feeling like something's impairing our ability to function, we should see somebody. Our mental health is no different than our physical health. And if I'm feeling so sick that I'm not able to get to work, I'm going to go see a doctor if that continues, right? I might let it happen for a day or two until I'm like, oh shit, I got to go see someone. I got to see the doctor. This is bad. So why don't we do that for our mental health? We can feel like shit and struggle to get to work because of our mental health for years before we actually do anything about it. So reach out, see someone and get properly diagnosed. But when it comes to the thought that you're just being lazy, I don't think that's true at all. Um, Having a mental illness doesn't make us lazy. Struggling to understand if we have one, reading about it, doing research, that's not lazy. That actually took a lot of effort. So nope. And then the other question about is it possible you're making it up just to escape things? I mean, I don't see how making up bipolar disorder would help you escape anything. I think that a lot of times we have such negative self-talk that even when we think something's wrong, we like second guess ourselves and don't believe ourselves. And so I don't want you to think that there's that uh, it's not very common for people to make up mental disorders. If you have a mental illness, you'll get properly diagnosed and treated. If you don't, that doesn't mean that you don't have like emotional issues that need to be worked out in therapy. It just means it wasn't something that was diagnosable and that, you know, that doesn't make it any less valid. So I don't think you're making it up. If you've been hurting and not feeling quite right, if you have bipolar disorder and you've researched it, or if you've researched it and the symptoms line up with how you've been feeling, then most likely, you know, you best. Um, But people don't make up. I just don't think you're making it up. It might not be the right one for you. You might have something different. I don't know. But that's why you should see a mental health professional get properly diagnosed. They'll let you know. And yeah, it will get better. Hopefully you can see someone without having your parents involved because they sound kind of like big old turds. Um, I would just tell them you'd like to see someone. You don't have to pretend that you know your diagnosis. It's okay to just tell our parents like, hey, you know, I've been having a tough time and I'd really like to talk to someone. I know different cultures have different views, but I think it's really important that we listen to our children when they reach out for help and they speak up. I know how much energy that takes from kids. I hear about it all the time, how hard it is, how many weeks you've tried and practiced and tried to come up with what you're going to say and what they might say back and the anxiety about it all. If your child comes to you asking for help, give it to them. It takes, I mean, I know some people are like, oh, it's, but it's expensive. So there are a lot of things. If they broke their arm, would you not take them to the hospital for it to get set and put in a cast? Yes, you would. Take them to see a therapist. Take them to see a mental health professional. So I would see if you can see someone without getting them involved. I believe you. We just need to get you properly diagnosed so you can get proper treatment. Okay. Question number eight. Should I tell my therapist about my suicide ideation that came again, even though I survived from it? So if you don't know what suicidal ideation is, suicidal ideation is like suicidal thoughts. It's like, I can think, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to ideate. I'm going to, you know, have maybe a potential plan that I try to think about, or this could be just like those thoughts that kind of come by, like think of them like clouds, like It pops up. It tells me I'm worthless and I should end my life. And I'm like, I know you thought. Interesting. Hmm. I think about it for a while. I let it go. That's what suicidal ideation is. It's just thinking about it. We don't have a plan really in place completely. We don't really have the means to do it, nor is the threat imminent, meaning I'm not going to try to take my life anytime soon. It's just a thought. I don't know where it came from. I don't really like it, but I, I, I recognize it and thought about it for a little while. Okay. So that's what suicidal ideation is. But The question, should I tell my therapist about it? 100% you should. I think it's really important as therapists that we have as much information as possible. The more information we have from you, the better we can treat it. Like the, if we don't have all the information, we aren't working with a full deck of cards, right? We don't, we aren't able to 
potentially give you homework, tools, tips, or help that is truly beneficial to the real problem because we might not even know. Like your therapist might not even know that you had suicidal thoughts at all. And I think that that's important because as a therapist, I like to check in on those. If I know you'd had them before, even if it was five years ago, every couple of weeks, I'm going to ask you about it. Hey, if you had any of those thoughts come back, you know, I know that I know it's been years, but I just want to check in. I want to give you a safe space to talk about it. Blah, 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 blah. Talk about it or say no, nothing. It's fine. I think the important thing that when you bring this up with your therapist and you say, hey, I had used to have suicidal thoughts, but, you know, I survived them. I haven't I haven't acted on it. It's been a while or, you know, been a month, been a year, been a whatever. Tell them that. And say, but I just wanted you to know that they have come up again, like they have come up before. So I want to make sure they don't come up again. And that will give them an idea of like some tips and tools and things. Maybe they'll create a safety plan for you. So you have it just in case. There's a lot of things that we can do. Um, Just make sure you tell them that these thoughts are not current and happening now, unless they are. But I'm just saying that as a therapist, it's important. We're going to, we're going to want to know how long they've been happening, what they are. Do you have the means? Do you have a plan? Um, means is like, do you have the thing that you're like, whatever you needed to, you know, act out on your suicidal thoughts? Do you have a plan in place? And is it happening now? Like when, when is this going to happen? And so we're going to, like whoever your therapist is, they're going to ask you those questions because they need to figure out how to treat it. But I would definitely tell them if you don't tell them, how are they supposed to help you with it? They can't. Okay, more water. And we have three more questions. Okay, question number nine. On an ethical or moral level, do you believe that in some cases suicide is okay? Or is it always evil? Now, I thought this question was interesting. First of all, I don't think suicide is evil. I think suicide is, uh, is it happens in a place of pure darkness where there's no hope or help to be found. Even the hope and help that we thought we had doesn't seem to do it. And we have just enough energy to act out on these very negative false thoughts. That's what I think suicide is. I think that it, it's, a, it's a tough place to be in when we think that like nothing can help and no one cares. That's a hard place to be in. And it's, it's also very hard to lose someone to suicide. It's a very complicated grief situation. Um, and so I don't think that suicide is always evil. I think, uh, I think it's very impulsive and not proper. I don't ever think that it's okay. I know people are going to disagree with this and think, Hey, there are times when suicide's okay. You have no idea my situation. I don't need to, you know why? Because there's always hope. There's always something we can do. I know suicidal thoughts and depressive thoughts try to take that from us. They try to tell us it'll never get better. Why even bother? They take our motivation, they take our hope, and they just keep us in the dark. But that doesn't mean that that hope and, you know, uh, motivation don't still exist outside of that darkness it's tried to create. We can rip through that thick, dark, black blanket it's put over our life. And we can start to see, even if it's just a little dot at a time of hope and motivation, it can come back. It is just blinding us. It's like... Um, for lack of a better description, it's almost like having a delusion. And I'm not saying that suicidal thoughts are part of it's and they're not delusions. I'm just giving you like an analogy. When we have schizophrenia, we have what are called delusions, which are firmly held beliefs. And what that means is, and those are false beliefs, but we believe them 100%. And there's nothing that I can say or do to change that belief in you. And until my patients with schizophrenia get on medication, they aren't able to see another way. Like they believe Jesus is talking to them through their television. And no matter how I unplug the TV and show them there's no way, how would, how would he get in? We turned the Wi-Fi off. There's all these, you know, we can do all our logical things. That's not how Jesus talks to people. They're not going to believe me. They believe Jesus is talking to them through their television every day at a certain time or whatever, or the CIA, or those are the most common. Anyway, depressive suicidal thoughts are no different. They are these false beliefs that we just can't quite let go of. And that's why I really think that the important thing to try to do is obviously to see a professional, but we need to start working on that self-talk because when we're suicidal, our self-talk is the shittiest of shit shit. It's just a garbage heap. All it is is negative, nasty. It puts us down. It robs us of our hope. It robs us of our motivation and it robs us of having any life. 
So in essence, it creates itself and it just, it's like a snowball effect, right? So what we have to do is we have to start noticing those thoughts. And I know we're not going to be able to say, oh, but I do like myself. Like we're not gonna be able to have any positive ones to fight back, but we can fight back with bridge statements. Statements like, it's possible that these thoughts aren't helping me. They're not helping at all. It's possible these thoughts are lies. They could be, maybe, maybe 0.001% of me could believe that that's a lie. Maybe my therapist is right. And I should try to possibly think more positively. We can just live in the possibility for a little bit and then work towards. So that's like the beginning. We're building like the foundation of one side of our bridge. Then we're going to start bridging the gap. So those thoughts that we have, maybe one of them is like, I'm worthless. I'm, I'm help, uh, nobody loves me. I can start thinking it's possible. I'm not as shitty of a person as I think. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not. I could be, but maybe I'm not. I don't know. I'm open to the idea that maybe I'm not. That's the first little bit of our bridge. And we're going to start growing it and growing it over into the positive thought, which is, I know that I'm worthwhile and people do care about me. We're, we're a long way off from that, but we can get there. We just have to build it one wood slat at a time as we build our bridge. So from those first little thoughts of maybe it's possible I'm not as shitty as I think I am, can move into it's possible that I am nice and people, I maybe people might like me sometime in my life. And maybe they might. I could, I could, I could believe that maybe if I think about it enough. And we're going to have to do this every day to get ourselves out of that deep pit that suicidal thoughts have kept us in and depression has snuffed out our hope. We have to get that back. It still exists. It just won't let us see it. But that doesn't mean with the right mental health care and support, potentially medication, if that's been beneficial for you and tracking those fucking shitty thoughts with those things, we can get better it does go away. I know, like kind of what I told you before about how being in our stress response, how it pulls our prefrontal cortex offline, and we aren't able to make good decisions. That's what depressive thoughts do to us as well. They don't allow us to make good decisions. We're super impulsive and can't even see the full picture. We're just like narrowed in on the negative parts of it. And so know that you're not thinking about it all or seeing it all. You're only seeing what your depression allows you to see, or your suicidal thoughts allow you to see. There is hope. It does get better. You're important. I see you. You're valuable. And you deserve a full, happy, healthy life. Um, so yeah, I don't think that suicide is ever okay. I understand it. But I don't think it's okay. Um, but it's not evil either. Like I said, I understand where it comes from. But it doesn't mean that I can't strive to try to stop it. Okay, question number 10. Some tips for insomniacs and how to improve sleep and when to go to the doctor about it. Well, right now we can't go to the doctor, but I think the best way to improve our sleep, I have an older video, probably like a year or two old, about uh, ways to improve our sleep. There's a lot of uh, techniques we can use. A couple of them are, first of all, cleaning out your sleep area. Don't mix your spaces. I don't want you working in bed. Beds should be for sex and sleep and nothing else. Okay. That's it, period. And if you have some things in your room, like a TV, and I'm so sorry, but if your dog or cat sleeps with you, not for a while till we get this sleep thing under control because they only move around and distract us, wake us up, and we just need to not have anything that's going to disturb us when we're trying to get this under control. Cool? I know. I'm sorry. I know you love your animals. I got a lot of pushback on that, but I'm being honest. I'm just telling you the facts. Let me drink a little water here. And so we got to clean up our space. Then I want you to, if you're laying in bed and you can't fall asleep, because some people can't fall asleep and some people can't stay asleep. Some people struggle with both. But insomniac to me tells me you can't fall asleep. So if you lay in bed for like 20, 30, 40, when we get to like the 40 minute mark into an hour, you need to get out of bed. Because otherwise, we're just getting more and more frustrated. Our, si our system is getting more and more ramped up. We're starting to feel so angry about that. And, uh, uh, and we roll around and we fluff our pillow again and we throw the blankets on. And we throw the blankets off because we're hot and we're cold. We're uncomfortable. Get out of bed. Get up. Do something non-stimulating. Nothing backlit. No TV, no phone, no computer. Maybe read a book. Maybe we color. Maybe we pet our dog because now it's in the living room. We go out. 
we do that for 20, 30 minutes, we try to go back to sleep because we don't want to lay in bed and just get more and more upset. Try that. The next is if we aren't falling asleep, let's say normally we try to go to bed at 10 30, 11 o'clock, but we aren't falling asleep till two in the morning and it is brutal. Well, now I want you to not go to sleep until two in the morning. I want you to stay up. In fact, I give you full permission to stay up. You stay up. You cannot go to bed until two because I want you to be so tired that at two, you go to bed and you zonk out. So that I think it's called, I forget what they call that as a sleep limitation. I'd have to look it up. But anyway, we're just limiting the amount of time that you're sitting in bed wishing for sleep to happen. And there's also things that we can take over the counter. Now, I'm not a doctor, but things like melatonin, um, if you talk to your physician or your psychiatrist, a doctor, and they say it's okay, you can take melatonin. There's L-theanine as one. Um, there's, there's a couple. Oh, even CBD. A lot of people said that that's helped with sleep. So there are over-the-counter things that we can take to assist us with sleep. But please talk to your doctor first just to make sure if you're on other medication, it doesn't like, you know interact with that or counter interact with your medication in a a bad way or cause any kind of issue for you. Um, So yeah, so there's that. And then I'm trying to think of what else. Um, The next is just changing the way that we think about sleep. So it's like, instead of ruminating on like, I never sleep well and sleep is such a shitty thing. And I hate going to bed because it's just going to be hours and that again, those are just negative thoughts about sleep. So instead of allowing those to take over our mind and make us hate sleep, we need to turn them into more positive. Like, yeah, last night was rough, but tonight's going to be better. I'm going to do my things. I'm going to use my tools and I'm going to go to sleep right away. I'm going to have the best night's sleep. Tomorrow's going to be great. I'm going to be so rested. We got, I know that sounds weird, but we've got to change it into a more positive thing. Um, yeah. And then also, obviously, no backlit items, no phone, laptop, uh, or TV. They say three hours before bed. I think that's crazy, especially right now. So try 30 minutes. See if you can do 30 minutes. I think we all can probably do that before we lay down. So it's like turn off the TV and start your bedtime routine. Wash your face. Having a routine is really important too. Like wash your face, brush your teeth, put your pajamas on. And then we lay into bed. We do not pick up our phone. You know, we need to do that. And if that can give us a 30 minute window from when we turned off the TV, stop looking at our phone, that's, that's the best that it can be. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, do not grab your phone. Uh, 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 so bad, so bad for you. It stops the melatonin production, wakes us up. Okay. Hopefully that helps. Final question. Are you, are you ready? Okay. How to balance reintegration from a burnout with the stress of COVID-19, especially when this brings extra pressure in your daily job. I feel like these are exceptional times where we need to step it up and work together. And I really want to do my part, but also I feel that my recovery takes a hit. 100%. I feel that. I feel the burnout. And so I think uh, part of it is just increasing our own self-care. Now, I know when I say the word self-care because it's been used way too much to sell goods to us like face masks and foot baths and fucking massages and shit like that. It's not really what self-care is. Self-care is whatever is that breath in for you. For me, it's reading a really insightful, thoughtful book. Like right now I'm reading one of Brené Brown's books that I've had for years and I read part of it like a long time ago, but I'm just rereading her book it has a lot of new insights and things that I just, oh, it's just a breath in for me. I also love my, my murder mysteries on TV. That's a nice distraction. I get caught up in the story. I enjoy it. I feel relaxed. Another thing that I do is I listen to music. Right now, it's kind of like darker, uh, sadder music, but it doesn't pull me into a spiral. I just feel calm. I enjoy the lyrics. I enjoy the beat of it. It helps soothe me and like soothe my system overall. I also have been like rubbing my feet and doing stretches at night. Those are things that help. So find ways to take breaks and do self-care and also shut the media off. I am so sick of the news right now. I just can't even. Half the time, it's not even news, you guys. It's just commenting on things. We think this person's not doing enough. We don't understand why the tests aren't here. Well, little, little, little. This person's a loser. This person's a loser. Yada, yada, pointing fingers, shouting, shut the fuck up. You know what I want to know? What's happening in my area? What do I need to do to keep my, me and my family safe? How are things progressing or not? That's it. And then I need some other news. Tell me something else. Tell me something I don't know. Um, and so just shut that media off. I only do about 30 minutes a day. That's about all I can handle. And one day I went without it completely. And surprise, surprise, I had a much better day. 
So do those things to help with your self-care. And then that will give us the energy to step it up because I'm feeling that pressure too, where I'm feeling terrible, but I know that I'm supposed to be like a beacon of light for people. And that's, it's hard. And I don't want to, sorry, excuse me. I just sniffed into this. Um, my nose itched. I don't want to burn myself out so that I can't do things at all. Like I can't take care of myself. I can't take care of anybody else. I can't put out good content. I don't want to push it that far. So just be aware. Make sure you're taking care of yourself first. It's it's like back to that old uh, saying from airlines where it's like, put on your mask first before you help someone else. We still have to do that. And so we have to increase that amount of self-care we're doing. Maybe that means decreasing media to barely next to nothing so that we can get it together and step it up for our jobs. Because I feel that and it's a lot. Um, but that's the only way we can survive this. But we will. We will survive it. And we will get better and we will get through this. Um, yeah, just remember that you're not alone. We're all in this together. Uh, stay home. Stay safe. Take care of yourselves. Um, yeah, and I'll ask for the questions again in my Katie Morton YouTube community tab. Uh, just stay tuned for that. Make sure you have the notifications turned on. I don't, um, I post in there probably about this like every other week or so. So just keep an eye out. Um, thank you so much for listening and watching. I hope you're happy and healthy and safe inside. Um, and make sure you do something nice for yourself. You're worth it. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. about your therapist or vent about your work you can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt you can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know